Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Chandler Collins. Chandler is currently a PhD candidate student at Barilan University, and he's working on Jerusalem during the Iron Age. But he's also interested in the biblical city. He obviously studied and worked in Jerusalem. But more importantly, he was stuck in Jerusalem during COVID. So we're certainly going to hear his views uh, about Jerusalem during that particular period of time. And he recently started a newsletter, Approaching Jerusalem. I will post the link in the podcast notes, but we're certainly going to delve into that later uh, throughout the podcast. But first things first, Chandler, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. It's good to be here, and I'm a big fan of your podcast, so uh, it's especially wonderful to to be invited to participate. Thank you so much. So I want to ask you just something about yourself. You can tell us a little bit more about your background, and more importantly, how did you come to work on Jerusalem during the Iron Age, which we could probably define the period of like the 8th to the 6th century BC, so a fairly long time ago? Yeah, well, I I hail from uh, the American Midwest. I grew up in Michigan and um, then by way of Chicago, ended up um, studying in Jerusalem as a part of my uh, graduate work when I was at uh, Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And uh, I studied at a small American school there on Mount Zion named Jerusalem University College. And uh, several years later, I ended up going back and uh, joining the staff at the university and served there for four years. And um, so my Jerusalem is mainly informed by those experiences. I've, I've done archaeological digs in different parts of the country um, and, you know, been all over both teaching just on my own, um, you know, excursions, but also teaching student groups. Uh, I taught a semester course there on um, on the geography of the biblical world and uh, did a lot of exploring around the city, especially during the end, um, during, you know, during COVID, uh, the end of my residency there. And um, the, uh, the, the whole package kind of gave me a, 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 an amazing appreciation for Jerusalem from the biblical city onward, really. So I gather that your Jerusalem started uh, from a religious background, but also moved into uh, archaeology. And so I was wondering, how did you start then having an interest in the very early period of the history of Jerusalem? Yeah, you're right. I, I grew up, um, you know, Protestant evangelical, and my entry point to Jerusalem, as a lot of 
people's is, you know, is via the, was via the Bible. Um, you hear, grow up hearing stories and, you know, picturing what Jerusalem was like, and then studying it in grad school, you know, you may learn some more academic and technical things about it, but visiting it for myself was uh, a very different experience and uh, something that I could never have learned, you know, outside of that context. Uh, I just kind of followed the natural trajectory that that my experience laid out for itself. I mean, I took courses when I was studying in Jerusalem. Um, and when I was on staff there also, I audited courses on the city, you know, the ancient city. And of course, you're walking around, you're, you're seeing excavations take place all the time because infrastructure is being put in and um, new infrastructure in the city. And, you know, when they break ground, if they hit uh, ancient architecture, the um, Israel Antiquities Authority will excavate there. So you're you're seeing those kind of the more observant, you know, people walking around will notice that. You also see large scale excavations, and it's just kind of part of the urban landscape over there. Um, you know, more so in certain parts of the city than others. Um, but all that just kind of drove me to try to explain or understand. I guess the the stories I had grown up hearing and what I was seeing on the landscape. On the podcast, I discussed with a few individuals uh, archaeological excavations, like the Givati parking lot, obviously Silwan, the question of the city of David. But we never really talked about, again, the very early period. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, how Jerusalem would have like, looked like. So when we, we talk about Iron Age Jerusalem, if we maybe can rewind, um, you know, before the Iron Age, beginning of the Iron Age, back, back into would be the second millennium um, BCE in the Bronze Age, and, and even earlier, you know, we have these early remains kind of clustered in an area of Jerusalem that's around the perennial spring there, uh, probably the biblical Gihon spring. In Arabic, it's Ein Siti Miriam. And um, the the early remains are clustered around the water source, which you might uh, expect. And there's some early buildings there, even from the third millennium BCE. And um, there's a fortification wall uh, found in several parts of the hill from the Middle Bronze Age, that's the second millennium BCE. Uh, and then, um, you know, things really pick up in the city in terms of, you know, in built infrastructure that's been uncovered into the Iron Age too. And that's what you mentioned, the eighth through the sixth centuries. Um, so the, the kind of the beginning and um, toward the middle of the first millennium. There's some evidence for um, earlier remains there, and that's when you get into debates about King David, King Solomon, you know, and the early Judaic kingdom, uh, this in the so-called United Monarchy. So the the focus of my research is um, toward the end of the Iron Age, and basically, if we can chart out the growth of Jerusalem uh, the way most scholars discuss it, it would start in this area around the spring that I mentioned earlier. And um, from that point, you know, most scholars believe that when the the temple was built, the Judite temple was built on the Temple Mount, uh, the city extended to the north then to accommodate that. So the, the ancient core would be clustered, um, you know, on the southeastern hill, Wadi Helwe today, or part of Sowan, um, and uh, then it came to include the, the Temple Mount. So you would have what you would expect in an ancient Near Eastern city, which is your temple at a high point, right, to the main deity. And as far as we can tell, the royal palace, you know, built adjacent to it, although there's not remains of the royal palace or the temple building, you know, proper that have been uncovered. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But um, this is the the structure of the city. Basically, we assume the 10th century BC and most of the ninth century BC. Um, and once you get into the end of the Iron Age too, say the eighth century, there's an interesting development that's hap that happens in Jerusalem, which is that the city grows 
onto what's called the Western Hill or uh, uh, modern Mount Zion. It would include the, um, you know, the modern uh, Armenian and uh, Jewish quarters as well. And there's evidence of the city growing onto the Western Hill and growing in a uh, a way that would not have been expected from the point of view of, you know, the people who first settled um, ancient Jerusalem. So the city comes to include two different ridgelines, the Eastern Ridgeline with the ancient core of the city and the Temple Mount, um, uh, Haram Sharif today, and then the uh, the Western Ridgeline. And so it's kind of these dual ridgelines with a pronounced valley in the middle. Um, the, what, what the Jewish historian Josephus calls the Tyropoian Valley. Um, most scholars call it the Central Valley today or where Elwad Street um, runs in the old city. So it's an interesting, it's, it's a city with an interesting um, urban dynamic uh, because the Western Hill is higher than the Eastern Hill, kind of the ideological core of the city where you had the sacred precinct and, um, you know, the, the um, royal palace. And so I'm, I'm very interested in that, the interplay in the dynamic between those two ridgelines. I'm curious about the uh, demographics of the city. Do we have any evidence about uh, the number of people that may have lived in Jerusalem and uh, who may have been? I mean, were they all part of the same group? Do we have people coming from outside Jerusalem and settled in Jerusalem? Do they practice all the same religion or is a mixed city in that sense? That's a really good question and very hard to answer. Um, from an archaeological point of view, population estimates are difficult uh, because what you you do is you take a, um, a given size of terrain, you know, in hectares, let's say, and multiply it by a density coefficient. And different archaeologists will use different coefficients, right? Depending on how how densely populated you assume a given space would be. Um, and so it's, it's not exactly easy to, to figure out. And we also, there's a lot of archeological unknowns in Jerusalem, right? Because so much of the city has not been and cannot be excavated. So you see a wide range in the population estimates, um, for, for the iron age city. Uh, some scholars assume it was a true metropolis of tens of thousands of people and others, you know, would take a smaller number and would see it as more sparsely populated. Um, but the trajectory in ancient Near Eastern history is that as you get closer and closer to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE, um, Jerusalem and Judah are really the last territory standing uh, as the Assyrian Empire has been, you know, taking over and and destroying kingdoms between them and Egypt and Judah's the last one that really remains and so uh, probably they they were able to enrich themselves by being a vassal state of Assyria and we see this growth in the archaeology particularly in the 7th century BCE where we see um luxury imports for example there was a jar that was found in the Givati parking lot excavations, which is just outside of Dungate. Um, and the, they did a residue analysis on the inside of the jar, and it revealed not only that it held wine, but that that wine was flavored with vanilla. And so there has to be a vast trade network to bring this vanilla um, all the way maybe from India um, up to Jerusalem. Uh, and there's other, you know, luxury goods like that that tell us that Jerusalem was integrated into, um, you know, both integrated into a network to bring these things into the city, and also that the um, elite and royalty of the city benefited from from these trade networks. As far as the you asked about the the people who lived in Jerusalem, and maybe if we know uh, where they came from, and that's also a hard question to answer. The Bible mentions a people called the Jebusites that David conquered um, in 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Chronicles 11. There's different theories about who these people were and if they may or may not have been connected to um, some uh, some earlier people who we know lived there from 
cuneiform documents called the Amarna letters. I don't want to get too, too uh, you know, in the weeds here. But as we fast forward in time, the and the Western Hill begins to be populated, like we talked about earlier, there is one idea that's been floating around in scholarship for the last uh, 40 years, let's say, that there was a massive wave of refugees that came into Jerusalem and populated the Western Hill from Israel, from the Northern Kingdom of Israel, after it was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And leading up to in the decades leading up to um, as the Assyrians began to make incursions into the southern Levant, um, that view was created to explain why there could be such a massive population explosion in Jerusalem at the uh, you know toward the end of the eighth century. But now archaeologists, I would say most archaeologists are kind of tempering that view. And seeing the growth onto the Western Hill as more natural growth over time um, and seeing it as beginning earlier, not as a population explosion at the end of the 8th century, but as a gradual growth beginning at the middle or or beginning of the 8th century. And even some scholars would put it at the beginning or at the very end of the 9th century. Um, so that doesn't mean that there weren't some refugees who ended up in Jerusalem. And maybe who even were living on the Western Hill, but um, it's we're not exactly fully able to explain it. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write my dissertation uh, on the Western Hill. So I'm knee deep in research right now, looking at not only the known archaeology of the Western Hill, but also some of the data points from around the outskirts of the Western Hill, like um, tombs, for example, um, Iron Age tombs that were found. Um, on the edge of the Western Hill and what some of the finds in there may tell us about the people who live there. Digging in Jerusalem means to dig through an almost uh, unlimited number of layers of history that piles up uh, on top of each other. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the most difficult aspects of your work as an archaeologist looking at this particular period in time and location in Jerusalem. And also, if you could tell us uh, what would make you the new Indiana Jones, what would be the discovery that would make you like, oh, here I'm you know, a game changer. I found something that is going to rewrite the history of Jerusalem in the Iron Age period. Well, that's a big question. Um, first of all, I've I have to say, I've never excavated myself in Jerusalem. I've seen excavations happening. Like I said, I've excavated elsewhere um, and I study the archaeological reports. So that's a big part of it is both um, pouring through the material, you know, looking at what's been published both in scientific uh, reports, those big books that people see in the library with a lot of technical information. And looking at journal articles, you know, the discussions in, in the journals. Um, there's also uh, conferences that take place every year on the archaeology of Jerusalem. A lot of that is published in Hebrew. You know, some of it's published in English. And so it's going through that material as well. It's a lifetime's worth of material, you know, for sure. Um, that's part of the process. And part of it, I think, also is really being there on the ground and knowing the topography well. Um, some discussions will be, you know, uh, will include maps and detailed information about the, the geography of the city. But if you haven't been there and you haven't walked it, you can't fully appreciate the, the weight of the argument, you know, in a given uh, publication. So I think for me, I've really drawn on my experience having been there uh, in, in reading through a lot of these um, these excavations. Uh, that's, that's part of it. And, you know, as far as what would be a find that would rewrite history, I mean, there's so many, there are so many you could list from so many different periods, right? Because when you dig in Jerusalem, let's say your interest is in the Bronze Age city, uh, the earliest city or the Iron Age city, um, or in all the periods, you know, which is, it becomes infectious at some point uh, across the board no matter what you're interested in, you, you have to deal both with the geography of the city and, and 
uh, everything between you and that period. So if you're going to go excavate, let's say, in a given um, spot, you deal with the you have the visible architecture around it on the ground, right? And then you you begin digging through the the stratigraphy, um, assuming that you have different parts of Jerusalem were um, dug out down to bedrock in later periods. So sometimes all that's been obliterated by let's say the Romans or the Byzantines, um, but in some cases you have good stratigraphy and you have to go through everything and and appreciate everything you know on the way down. So truly, I mean Jerusalem is is every archaeological period is so loaded with questions and um, you know difficulties that there's any I, I could give you many answers for for many different periods but in terms of the let's just talk about the iron age on the western hill if we can narrow it if we could find and there have been pieces of this that have probably been unearthed over the last uh 40 years 50 years but if we could find a clear indisputable piece of the fortification wall of the iron age city um on the western hill uh, particularly the southern part of the western hill or the western we, we have some of it maybe on the western line but if we could find a nice big chunk of it that was indisputable i think that would um help to clinch the view that the entire western hill was fortified basically from jaffa gate all the way down to um i mentioned jerusalem university college earlier that's the old bishop gobot school buildings there um and around the protestant cemetery and then um you know down toward the, the bottom of silwan um is where we think the the fortification wall ran so a, a piece of that would be helpful and you know there's also debates about how people living on the western hill got their water a lot of scholars believe that the the so-called pool of siloam or whatever the precursor was for that back in the iron age um was the water source for the people living on the western hill but people in jerusalem have subsisted on cistern water for a long time you know even into the ottoman period and in the british mandate um and so it could be that they they use cisterns on the western hill but we don't have any evidence of that yet so finding an iron age cistern would also be helpful um you know but but the the data is so sparse because the western hill is so densely occupied and the the place that's been the most excavated as you probably know is in the you know modern jewish quarter which was rebuilt reconstructed after 1967 um and there's a whole you know host of issues involved in that but um the the reconstruction allowed the opportunity to excavate there and so um that's where we have the most data from um, and then other parts of the western hill as well but a lot of it is spotty so in other words you're looking at what one archaeologist or team of archaeologists found uh at an area where they were you know building a foundation for a new building or repairing a sewer drain or fixing part of a road and so part of looking at all of this archaeological material is connecting finding a way to connect all of those dots and try to make a reasonable case for what the city looked like. It's a difficult process. I always been fascinated by the work of archaeologists, whether digging or studying, but I always have been very uh, aware of the fact that I would never have been a good one because I don't have the patience to wait for the digs for all of the small pieces to come up and, you know, working with very little evidence. So, um, uh, I always tell myself, I'm happy that I work on the 19th and early 20th century where I do have a lot of more sources available. I want to ask you something about archaeologies and its political use. Now, but let me start with this uh, story. So I have a very good friend uh, who's working for Aretz, and she was telling me that the section dedicated to archaeology is the most clicked on Aretz Online right after the news. So you have the majority of readers clicking the news about the politics of Israel and in Palestine. Um, and the second most clicked section is in fact archeology. span And that's where they're investing a lot of money also in uh, 
commercials and you know keeping that section alive with a lot of news and a few times we had discussions about it so i said how do you select the stories well like and she was telling me that sometimes i just like uh, have a backup of stories and they select them also according to the politics of the day whether it's a uh, jewish holidays whether it's the uh, contemporary unfolding of events and that made me think about this different kind of use of archaeology in in political terms um something that probably i will deal with at, at some point but i was wondering in your views uh you know what's your take on the clear use of archaeology for contemporary issues and mostly political contemporary issues yeah you raise an interesting point which is that there are a lot of people interested in this stuff and they are um you know i'm not surprised to hear that about haaretz that their archaeology section actually is the second most popular um you know i see articles all the time like that whether it's jerusalem post or times of israel or whatever outlet um one of the things that i have my students do actually is to do a critical reading of several pop media archaeological stories and to evaluate the headline because headlines are usually sensationalized right to to draw your click um and then to examine the ways in the body of the story that uh people will use the bible or other you know well-known texts or or um ancient stories to draw out elements of the archaeology that may or may not be fair actually to the data right so learning to read the data in the story and i have them write their own headline for it you know to an unsensational headline um that's not to say that nothing that comes out of pop media is helpful and it certainly keeps people up to date on new finds or the ways that you know archaeology is being developed um in israel palestine so um yeah the, but but that's interesting as far as the politicization of archaeology i mean there's a lot that's been written on that and is continuing to be written um jerusalem is you know it's a mess in a lot of ways right um and you hear that word if you know hebrew and arabic you you hear that word in in those languages just walking around the city um but uh i try to work on all sides of the city and to appreciate data where wh whatever context it emerges from you know so when you have a team of archaeologists uh you know digging and and finding uh clear stratigraphy like we talked about earlier or architecture and um ceramics pottery or whatever comes out of that excavation it's my job as a researcher to take that data seriously and evaluate it right and evaluate the conclusions of the archaeologists who publish that data and interact with all of that um so that's one you know side of it and then there's another side where you're you know i was living in the city or you're teaching student groups in the city walking around and engaging and seeing the way that archaeology has reshaped the landscape of jerusalem you know especially since the uh since 1967 but even earlier right um and so engaging that and appreciating it you know means seeing the ways that that development affects residents and the way that it's displayed um are certain periods being fronted over others you know things like that i think sometimes those processes get conflated with the archaeological process itself right and um in these excavations you have well-trained professional archaeologists um who are doing you know uh, excavations with good methodology in most cases um and then the, the dig is published and then it's developed into a national park you know and the the there's two different sides of the coin there you know if that makes sense there are excavations in um so on that have been criticized actually from archaeologists in the field for their methodology so there are some there that for example the uh, horizontal tunneling that's uh, uncovering the um so-called pilgrimage road i call it the siloam road between the um Birkat el hamra the pool of siloam and um you know going up the the slope from there 
that's it's difficult to dig horizontally and do justice to the um, stratigraphy. You know, you, you, most most all excavations happen from the top down. Another excavation that's happening now is at the Pool of Siloam. And, you know, I'm not in the city to observe this myself, but I've seen a lot of photos from, from people who've basically shown that some backhoes were taken into that space and a ton of earth was removed without paying careful attention to the what, what was in the dirt. And, it, you know, archaeology is not just about finding architecture, but it's about paying attention to changes in the soil color um, and to, you know, small finds within the soil and what that can tell us about um, different periods in the in the city of Jerusalem's history. So probably some data was lost there and it's going to be impossible to know how much. Um, now I'm seeing that that area has been marked out in squares and, you know, is going to be excavated until whatever remains of the Pool of Siloam will be uncovered um, there. So I try, it's a, it's a difficult topic, you know, um, uh, both because I'm working in that context and want to be fair to the archaeologists who are doing good research and unearthing important data, and also because I love Jerusalem and I I want to see all sides of the city treated fairly. And um, I realize the way that developments that highlight the biblical material only can draw in a lot of tourists and um, um, you know have a detrimental effect on residents, particularly. And I'm thinking of Sowan, you know. Um, obviously, but um, you know, it could be applied to anywhere in the city. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talking about Silwan, you have worked for four years, if I remember well, um, and you were on the staff at the uh, Jerusalem University College that you mentioned earlier, which is on Mount Zion, and is very close to borders. Obviously, these are invisible borders. Some of them are officially recognized, the Green Line of 1948-49, uh, and uh, others are less visible, but essentially divide neighborhoods between sort of mostly Jewish neighborhoods and Palestinian ones. And uh, the school, if I remember well, is exactly like in between these these locations. And so I was wondering if you can share with us your experience of walking around, crossing these borders, and, you know, sort of exploring that side of Jerusalem. Yeah, I would say that I I was pretty privileged to be able to cross the borders and not 
really carry any baggage with me or fear um, in most cases. I, we also lived uh, on the Russian compound, you know, within a, the Russian compound. So we, we also lived kind of on the seam as well. And I could be down the street and to Damascus Gate in five, 10 minutes and the same, you know, down to, to Jaffa Gate. Um, so I, I crossed all sides of Jerusalem all the time and had experience, lots of different experiences on, uh, in all parts of the city. Um, like I said, I, I think that my coming from an outside, um, coming as an outsider, I was able to do that with a lot more fluidity than maybe some residents are either able to do or feel comfortable, you know, to be able to do. Jerusalem is a city, um, that does have invisible borders, like you mentioned. And when you first get there, you have no idea where they are, right? You just kind of, oh, Damascus Gate's over here and Jaffa Gate's over there, Machna Yehuda, you know, et cetera. And the more you live there and understand the city, you begin to feel the borders, you know, um, slowly. So you, you mentioned you were living the other side of Jerusalem and you were walking towards uh, uh, the Jerusalem University College, essentially cutting across the city. And I'm aware that you are interested also uh, in food. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your own experience given that you literally crossed sides, particularly through the old city, uh, what were your favorite food? And also, if you have memories of what you know made you feel like, uh, oh, this is the Jerusalem smell. This is uh, my Jerusalem food. Well, who doesn't love food? Um, my, I think one of my favorite experiences being in Jerusalem was getting up and going for early morning walks. You know, the earlier, the better to see the city wake up, but let's say uh, 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And one of the things you experience when you do that is all of the smells of the bakeries that are baking their bread for the day, whether it's pita, you know, hubas, or whether it's the Jerusalem bagels, uh, you are drawn in by the, the smell. And I love fresh bread. I really do. And one of the things I would do is go, you know, buy bread and then ask if I could take photographs of the the fresh bread they were making on the cart, you know, or in the oven or whatever. And um, it's just so delicious to have it right out of the oven. The Jerusalem bagels in particular, because they're so unique. I know you can get them in other places around um, the country, but there's something about having them there with a little packet of za'atar and being able to enjoy it, you know, as I was walking around the city and watching the city wake up in the morning, maybe get an espresso or Arabic coffee uh, to start the day. I think that's, to me, that's always going to be something that I I treasure as a memory living there and will always do, you know, when I go back. Um, and you're seeing Jerusalem in the morning light, you know, as a photographer, it's, you're, you're catching some really interesting angles of the city as the lights beginning to come through those dark old city streets, you know, and things like that. Uh, so you really discover where the bakeries are too, because you may not see them. If you just walk around the city in the afternoon, they've already baked their bread for the day and the, the doors are, you know, mostly closed. Um, you'll see, not only will you find the bakeries, but you'll see pita bread hung around on different shops. You know, they just hang it on the doorknobs or they'll put it, um, on the street, you know, in front of the shop. And then it's just there for the day when, when the person shows up to open. So when you get up in the morning, you know, you see a different side of the city as it's people are planning for the day and waking up and then you see kids going to school and stuff. Um, and that's, that's probably my answer is the fresh bread, but we could take that uh, further into the day and say later breakfast or brunch, there's an amazing, um, Georgian food. I'm, I hope I don't butcher the name, but it's Hachaipuri, I think is the name of it with the, you know, it's like a bread boat that holds an egg and cheese in the middle with butter. And uh, you rip off parts of the bread and then dip it in the egg and butter. And it's just, uh, I've never had anything quite like it. And, you know, Jerusalem is such a mishmash of different, uh, cultural experiences and, and different food. I don't know if I would have found that or had that experience, you know, had I not lived there. 
I just want to mention to the listeners that Chandler has a very, very uh, cool uh, Instagram profile. I will put the uh, link in the uh, podcast notes with amazing pictures of Jerusalem and also of uh, bread and pizza. And um, just because you were mentioning that, I remember the conversation I had with uh, Mahmoud Muna of the uh, uh, bookstore in Jerusalem and how you know people have all different you know, favorite places. And sometimes they just go across religious affiliations or identity in general. Like one of my favorite bakeries, for instance, is at the very end of the um, Jewish quarters, which I discovered is actually run by Palestinians, uh, which is a very interesting location because it's in between the Armenian quarter and the Jewish quarter. And there's a parking lot there, one of a few inside the old city. And here you have this like Palestinian been there forever i would say and you know it's a very unassuming place which you find in the morning and as you said not in the afternoon and uh, i remember the times that i used to, you know that i lived in jerusalem used to go around the old city i too would go around and trying to find you know my spot where i would find the my favorite bread or rugalak or uh, pastries and you know knafe and so forth so i built this uh uh flavor and taste map of Jerusalem, which I, I, I believe is unique to everyone uh, in the city. Let me ask about uh, your, your other work. So in recent time, you started a newsletter, Approaching Jerusalem. Uh, Approaching Jerusalem is a collection of articles. There's also a few uh, book reviews. There's also a very, very interesting list of readings about Jerusalem, which I found very uh, useful in many ways. Um, so I was wondering, how did you come up with the idea and what's the purpose of approaching Jerusalem? So initially, I just wanted a space to be able to work out my own work, my own thoughts on um, different issues in Jerusalem and things that I I really personally wanted to explore for myself. Um, some of this comes out of my own experience in the city, you know, teaching, really focusing on the biblical city um, up to the time when it was destroyed by the Romans in the first century and not really paying close attention to much else. But the longer you live there and the more you research the city and look at the visible architecture, you know, um, you you just begin to want to break out of that and look at all periods of the city. There were also things I couldn't really explain for myself. Like, for example, I would hear and often repeat myself the idea that the city, the old city has four quarters. And you see it in the archaeological books. You know, most people are just borrowing from what they've heard or, you know, assuming the grid that they've received. And I always wondered, where did these four quarters come from, for example? Um, and I couldn't really find an answer. So I had to do a lot of digging on my own, um, uh, which took me back to the Ottoman period and, you know, really got me interested in, in late Ottoman Jerusalem. So the newsletter is a place for me to both work out those questions for myself and try to write things I think are interesting. Um, and as a landing pad for issues that I'm, uh, discovering in my own, you know, dissertation research. And you know, research related to the dissertation. I also wanted to make it a space where I would try to track Jerusalem, uh, the publications and developments in Jerusalem, because I realized that so many scholars are are writing about Jerusalem and are researching it, but they're not all talking to each other, either because they're from different sides of an ideological divide or because they're writing about different periods or simply because there's so much material out there that they haven't seen what someone else has written. And so I wanted to create a space where I would, to the best of my ability, track new publications of Jerusalem, books, articles, new websites uh, that, you know, that comment on Jerusalem, um, videos, podcasts, you know, such as this one. Um, and developments in the city to try to help people keep up with the larger conversation that's going on about Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know how successful you can be trying to do something like that, but um, that's a goal that I have. So periodically I'll publish what's called the Jerusalem Tracker newsletter, where I try to track 
all the new stuff that's out there on the city. And I miss some, you know, and I update it later, but um, hopefully it's a way for scholars to stay up to date and just people from the interested public um, about, you know, what has been published uh, both in the scientific journals, let's say, and in pop media, archeological um, platforms and everywhere else, just for any, anyone who's interested in the city. Your latest article on the website talks about something I was not even aware of, uh, this idea of flattening Jerusalem's terrain, uh, which, uh, if I understood correctly, was the idea of uh, using artificial platforms, essentially, to flatten Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can just give us a sense of uh, what you've wrote in this uh, uh, short article. Yeah, so what I wanted to talk about was everyone knows you know, for example, the Herodian Temple Mount project, where the topography the, of Jerusalem was reshaped into a platform there, you know, that's the the foundational courses that you can still see there at the at the Western Wall, and then other parts, um, you know, around the base of the, the Noble Sanctuary. Um, that's one example. But there were others. And I started to notice that it's kind of a, let's say, geographical, part of the geographical genre of the city, that um, different rulers in antiquity flattened out the terrain to build monumental projects. So another example would be on the Western Hill, just inside Jaffa Gate, Herod the Great built there, um, as best we can tell, his Western palace. And it must have been enormous and uh, beautiful in antiquity, but we have almost nothing from it left over of the superstructure. What we do have are the subterranean retaining walls that were built to um, construct an artificial platform on which the palace was built. So you have evidence of it really only in excavations and you don't see it above ground, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't continued to influence the shape of the city after Herod's day. So the project was both looking at where these artificial platforms are and looking at how they've continued to shape the topography of Jerusalem, you know, since they were constructed. So for example, if you come in Jaffa Gate today and you hang a right, go by the Citadel on your right-hand side, Christ Church on your left-hand side, and you begin to walk south on Armenian Patriarchate Street, you'll notice that that street is very level. And if in all the spaces along the street where you can look to the right, you'll see that um, like there's a parking lot there on the in the southwestern corner of the old city, and other pieces of the terrain that are that are fairly level. That's not the case in other parts of the city. And if you keep walking east from there, any of the streets basically that go east, whether it's David Street um, down into the you know the bazaar um, right out of Jaffa Gate, or um, uh, following Armenian Patriarchate Street around as it bends past the inside of um, Zion Gate, it's going to the terrain begins to drop in elevation. Um, and you feel that, you know, as you walk. So um, people may wonder, you know, as they're walking, are we just on a high point of the hill or what's going on here? And the the answer there is kind of both and. It, it is the high point of the Western Hill, but also this terrain was shaped in antiquity by Herod the Great's palace project. And so you feel the effect of the platform even, you know, as you walk there today. And uh, Herod also covered over earlier remains when he had this platform built. So there's kind of a dual, you can look at it two different ways, or I tried to in the article, um, which is looking at how the platform shaped experiences of Jerusalem after Herod and um, looking at how it reshaped the pre-existing terrain. Because my question, my dissertation question is the Iron Age, right? So before Herod the Great, that means that we have to as best we can with all the tools available, um, uh, try to understand what the terrain looked like before this massive platform was built, you know, over it. Um, so Herod is reshaping something that's there. And in, in, you know, a lot of cases, what we see there is evidence of quarrying and walls that may be part of houses, may be part of um, terraces that made up, um, that, were, that were used for agriculture, um, there's different interpretations for it, but whatever interpretation we give to it, um, we have to deal with the the platform that Herod built. 
Um, so, and there's other examples, you know, like the Herodian Temple Mount. I looked at the Nia Church also of Justinian, which was built in the sixth century, and the the area around where the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is today, which was the Rome the, the Forum in the Roman period and the Byzantine period. So that area was flattened out as well. Actually, you mentioned the Nia Church, and uh, I was reminded that I would say the largest uh, majority of visitors, particularly Christian visitors, when visiting the city, they obviously either go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or depending on the denomination, they may go to the uh, uh, garden tomb just outside the, the walls of Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. But very little is known about the Nia Church, which was the most important church in Jerusalem. And if I remember well, and you mentioned that in the article, it's only after 1967 that uh, finally some evidence of what was known uh, was found. And so we have uh, an idea about the size and the location of the church. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the missing piece here. I mean, what was the Nia Church and what did it represent for the Christians in Jerusalem? Yeah, so the Nia Church, uh, like I said, was built in the 6th century by Emperor Justinian. It was a church that was uh, built in honor of Mary, and it was, um, a lot of archaeologists will talk about it as kind of a um, a southern balance to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So you have two large you know, churches, one in the middle and one on the southern side of the city. But as best we can tell, it was bigger. A bigger building actually than the Holy Sepulchre. I wouldn't say it was a more important building, um, but definitely larger, you know, on the landscape. Um, the building was known. Uh, we have historians who wrote about it. Um, so we we knew that it stood in antiquity, but we didn't know exactly where it was. Um, toward the end of the 19th century in Madaba, Jordan, a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with the Madaba map. Uh, which is a mosaic map in a church there that shows the Holy Land right around this time. Most scholars date it to the sixth century, um, or you know, just just after. And in the middle of that map was Jerusalem, an enlarged ideological picture of Jerusalem. And uh, there's definitely you know theological interpretation going on, which anyone uh, studying the map will uh, will discuss. But the map does show visible architecture in 6th century Jerusalem that we can demonstrate was there. I mean, the you can see the foundation, the, the projecting towers underneath what are what's today Damascus Gate on the map. And, you know, if you go to the area of the excavations in Damascus Gate today, you can see the foundation of those, um, those towers. Um, and then the Cardo Maximus, the main street that ran north-south in Jerusalem, is kind of a defining feature of the Madaba maps, depiction of the city. And on the southern end of it, we see the a large building that that scholars interpreted as the Nia Church before evidence of it was found um, after 1967. So we knew sort of where it was after we had the Madaba map. Um, there's a before that time there were scholars kind of put it all over the place and sort of guessed to different locations, including some scholars thought it was um, in the area where the Al Aqsa Mosque is today, which is kind of funny. But uh, if we wrote in the middle of the 19th century, maybe we would have assumed that, you know, too, um, with the, the data they had at their disposal. But um, the church came off of the Cardo Maximus. And so it, it kind of anchors the southern side of it. And, um, you know, it sat just on the eastern part of the Cardo there. You can see if you are walking down to the area of Dung Gate today and you're on that road, it's a paved road look out because there's taxis and shroots and stuff that will fly by on that road. But on the way down to Dungate, just on the right-hand side of the road, to so the south side, one of the apses of the Nia church is exposed. It's the southern uh, apse, one of the smaller ones. And so you can see it there. There's a little sign you know, that highlights it. It, it could definitely be more prominent, um, but that's the only piece of it that's, that's really visible. There's part of the uh, structure of subterranean vaults sits just nearby, but I think that area has been boarded up now. You definitely can't go in there unless you know somebody who can get you in, but um, that area and the parking lot adjacent, that same parking lot you were talking about, Roberto, uh, by the bakery that you like, um, that's the area of the Nia Church there. 
I have uh, one more question, which is very much about your period uh, in Jerusalem during COVID. Now, had you been back in the U.S., in Michigan, where you're from, probably would have been very different. We had restrictions, but not the same level as in Israel. And so I was wondering, how was life during COVID in Jerusalem? It was absolutely wild um, and for, for a lot of reasons, but the country was closed. Nobody could come in and uh, your listeners will know well that tourism is a huge part of the, the economy and it's something that you know keeps a lot of people working. And so that mechanism was shut off. I was working at a university where we depended on student groups coming in and we depend on experiential learning with students in, you know, physical spaces. And to not have that meant that we did what everybody else did, which is that we took things online and tried to make the programs accessible. That was difficult. There were lockdowns, um, three of them, if I remember right. The whole period is kind of a blur, uh, I think, for a lot of us. But uh, where we, you know, we couldn't go more than, say, 500 meters from our house, except for uh, for essential services. Um, usually those overlapped different holidays to try to keep, you know, people uh, at home. But it was very interesting because with no tourists in the country, I I had experiences that I probably will never have again. For example, I was in Bethlehem one time. I was taking videos for a, um, a geography class I was teaching at the time because I wanted the students to be able to experience the uh, landscape, you know, by video at least, if they couldn't be there. And anybody who goes to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem knows that you normally stand in a long line to wait and go down into the grotto to the, um, you know, reputed um, spot where Jesus was born. And I just walked right down to the basement there and there was nobody in there. And I sat there for probably the better part of 40 minutes by myself and just sat in the space and, you know, looked around and made observations and kind of sat in the, you know, in the moment. I think one person came down and and then left. Uh, I, I will certainly never have that kind of an experience again. I had a similar experience in the tomb of Christ and the Holy Sepulchre where I, I just stood in there for minutes um, uh, by myself. And, you know, it was a very, it was a strange time because you were both excited for what you were able to do as an individual, but also aware of how much it was, you know, the situation was hurting people, both both just the relationships of, in general and, and the ability of the, um, you know, the tourist mechanism to get going again. And all these programs in Jerusalem and throughout the country, which depend on people coming in. Um, but one thing I did during COVID was I, be, I got really interested in the Ottoman city. And I had always been interested in um, the what's called the Ordnance Survey of Jerusalem in 1865, which was undertaken by Charles Wilson, a British royal engineer who came to the city to um, ostensibly help with the, you know, develop the water supply. But um, it, to do that created the first scientific map of Jerusalem that really had, um, you know, sharp detail and elevations above sea level. And in different places in the city, Charles Wilson and his team etched uh, benchmarks in um, the city walls and in buildings. And uh, they took elevation readings from the horizontal bar uh, at the top of these benchmarks. And um, I'd always known about the one at Jaffa Gate on the lower, as you're walking into the gate, it's on the lower, you know, right-hand part of the, the gate structure. But I, and I'd heard about a few others and seen a few others, but I, I wondered if I could find them all. And so I started to track them on the ordnance survey map. And I, I realized that he had them, their position marked out. And so I surveyed them, um, labeled them all and surveyed them and tried to see how many of them still existed because antiquity law doesn't protect the benchmarks because uh, they're not old enough to be considered, you know, antiquity. And yet they're an important part of Jerusalem's, you know, uh, from the, uh, the Ottoman period and, you know, um, from the beginning of British interests. And there's a whole discussion there, but I wanted to 
understand where they are and how many have been lost. And so that was a, a fun project for me uh, during COVID. So between breaks, you know, when we could go out in the city again, I would go out and hunt these things and, and walk around and um, smell the bread like we were talking about earlier. Masked, you know, of course, uh, until they got rid of their mask mandate. But in the, the July sun, you know, walking around in Jerusalem um, in hiking boots and, and a mask, it was a wild experience. You just reminded me something similar I did. I think it was 2004 or five, and I had this 1907 uh, tourist guide uh, published by the Franciscans. And I, I tried to essentially follow the tours that they were recommending, um, you know, and just trying to figure out what they change. And obviously, most of the things that really changed was about businesses. And some of them were still there, perhaps under different names, but you still recognize uh, sort of a structure or the original business a century later. Uh, I guess my last question is, uh, is there anything that uh, we didn't discuss, uh, you know, throughout this conversation of whether about your work, your experience in Jerusalem, but that you want to point out? I don't, I don't think so. Um, we could talk for hours, you know, about um, all facets of Jerusalem. I think for me, uh, I try to do justice to the city from the ground up, you know, looking at the geography, understanding the contours of the natural topography that's there and the visible city, you know, the physical city that we have um, and understand the way that the city developed uh, in antiquity and until today and how that reflects both the people who are living there now and, and the people who live there, you know, in antiquity. Um, you, you read a lot of writing about Jerusalem that's really good and that's connected to this, the city, though the physical city. And then, um, you know, some scholarship that, um, you know, hasn't been influenced by the, the physical, you know, aspects of the city. And there's some justification for that. You know, a lot of the biblical material is hard to date that describes a Jerusalem, you know, or physical aspects of Jerusalem, and we may not be able to tell what exactly that text is referring to. And it could even just be a purely ideological reference, you know, in the text, um, not to anything, you know, specific or physical in the city. But I try to, I guess I try with my scholarship as best I can to connect the Jerusalem we see in text, you know, very carefully and when well understood with the Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem that we have. You know, um, because these texts came, they, they they emanated from a real city. They were written by people who experienced a real place. And so that's kind of my approach, whether we're talking about the, the Iron Age or the Ottoman period. This was Chandler Collins. Chandler is currently a PhD researcher at Barilan University and is working on Jerusalem during the Iron Age. He's a photographer and also is the author of Approaching Jerusalem, a newsletter available online, and I will post all of the links on the podcast notes. Chandler, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.